Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, everyone. We have a PowerPoint. Here we are. There, it's up. Uh, Thank you all so much for coming, and I hope you're excited about being here. I'm very excited about giving this talk. It's a bit like a secret gig at Glastonbury. I promise you, you're in the best place. Much better than James Holland talking about the Second World War. So you can pat yourselves on the back, because uh, this is going to be a bit of a kind of a crazy explosion. Histories of the Unexpected is a podcast that I've been doing with James now for about a year. We've done something like 40 different episodes. 45. 45. Yeah. Um, and it was born from a, a sort of crazy idea that I had um, over my career as a historian. I've become increasingly aware that absolutely everything has a history. It's not just Spitfires. It's not just warships. It's not just clothes. Tanks. Everything, emotions, thoughts, ideas objects. And what's happening at the moment is there is an entire kind of tranche of the most brilliant, wonderful historians out there writing the most fabulous history about things you didn't have any idea had a history. I promise you. We've just done one on the history of holes, which was completely fabulous. We've also just recorded something on the history of farts, the history of... The history of cats. Chickens. Cats are amazing. Cats are all about... um, Cats are all about the French Revolution. So the idea is that what we do is we take a sort of an ordinary idea or an object, and we link them to a sort of major event in history. So, for example, we did the history of the fart the other day, which is, in fact, all about the Reformation. It takes a little explaining, to be fair. So you need to let you... Well, let, let's explain with some, with some examples right, of how so, we came so up with this th- idea. Th- this insane idea I'll explain the me. fart and the Reformation yeah, yeah, yeah. later yeah, yeah, yeah. on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the fart's actually not. It's all about the history of schadenfreude. I did the accident, accidental fart. So I was talking about people laughing at other people farting by accident. And that's got an amazing history. And people's reactions to other people's pain or embarrassment has changed over time. So there we go. It came to me when I was leading a tour of um, Portsmouth, which I've done many, many times. And I was walking around HMS Victory, and then we finally got to the magnificent stern of HMS Victory. And I suddenly went, oh, my God, I've got no way of explaining what that's doing there. Everyone usually goes, oh, it's a really big window. It's really kind of cool. It's ridiculous. It's like a conservatory on the back of a tank. (laughs) What are they doing? The walls are three feet thick, made out of oak. Okay, so at some point, someone's decided it's a good idea to have a window made out of thin, exceptionally expensive glass on the back of a warship. Not just one warship, on the back of all of the warships. That idea had then transformed to the French Navy, the Spanish Navy, Portuguese Navy, Dutch Navy, American Navy. Every Navy in that period had windows on the back of their warships. And I I couldn't explain it. 
Um, I didn't say I can't explain that, but uh, something kind of nestled in the back of my mind. And then I realised that you can't possibly explain that until you understand the history of windows. And you can't explain that until you understand the history of looking, the history of the view. Now, once you've unpicked all of that, you realise that in this amazing age of enlightenment, when it was all to do with behaviour, it was all to do with ideals, it was so crucially important for these people, not just to be enlightened, but to appear enlightened. And that was more important than providing defence for all of the sailors on board, which is an extraordinary thing if you think about the amount of people that died and fought in so many of these battles. So everywhere you look, once you take this approach to the past, you realise that there is so much that's not actually explained and that's not understood. So part of what we do is to highlight the holes in history. And that is genuinely one of the most exciting things you can do as a historian. So if you're here looking for answers, we're not going to give you answers. What we're hopefully going to do is just sort of blow your brains up and say everything you've assumed is actually on shaky foundations. And we can, by presenting really exciting new ways of thinking about the past, help you all become inspired, I hope, to go and find out about the past in different ways. Yeah, and I think that there are several ways in thinking about this. I mean, at, this is a sort of new methodology, and to sort of get a little bit sort of academic uh, for a moment, if I'm, if I'm allowed, there is kind of shot through this methodology an approach to objects and object biography, so how you actually study things, and this is something that archaeologists and anthropologists have done for years, and that is then fused with a kind of with a sort of global history, so a sort of global comparative history, looking at how things change across time. And this idea of Sam's about the, the warship here led to him to text me uh, saying, James, uh, I'm thinking of setting up a new podcast. For those of you who don't know what a podcast is, think of it as a wireless essay. Um, uh, but it's on, it's on iTunes through Dan Snow's History Hit Network. It, and he said that, you know, that he wanted to do a new and exciting podcast series. And could I be a sort of regular guest? I said, well, let's have a coffee. He told me about this. And I said, the history of Windows is nothing to do with seeing and the Enlightenment. In fact, it's about defenestration. It's actually about throwing people out of Windows, which started the Thirty Years' War. And then it led to, I said, well, we can do the same as you've done with Windows with oranges. As oranges are, in fact, all about the gunpowder plot. And I, and I regaled him with a tale from, the, from a, a Latin autobiography of a Jesuit priest, John Gerard, who, ha who was imprisoned in the fleet and had an orange smuggled in, wrapped in paper, and he used the paper to then communicate secretly with his female sustainers outside of the prison gates. He used the peeling of the orange to form rosaries, which was part of his Catholic practice. He used the flesh of the orange to bribe the jailer, and he used the orange juice, as those of you who've read your, your Enid Blyton and know all about secret invisible ink, he used that as invisible ink to write on the paper that the orange was wrapped in. He then escapes and gets involved in the gunpowder plot. From that moment on, it was very clear to me that we could, we could do this with all sorts of, of extraordinary things. Nelson's lightning rod. Yeah, well, the lightning rods was one of the ones we, we, we did next, wasn't it? I mean, I, I think it's worth just thinking about stuff. So people say to me, so Sam, how did you become a historian? I, I write about ships in the sea. That's my academic background. I'm a maritime and naval historian. But 
I, I loathe being pigeonholed. And actually, I think when you, when you see all these historians standing up and talk, you, it, it's all about the way that they think about the past rather than about the subjects. It's quite an important leap to make because you're all there because you're interested in Dunkirk, if you're seeing James Holland. But hopefully you're all here because you're interested in, in a way of thinking about the past. And actually, that's what I'm passionate about more than any particular subject. Often, our interpretations of these strange things, whether it's lightning or cats, will come back to our sort of safe space, our area of understanding. For me, that ship's in the sea. James is professor of early modern history. So for him, he, it's every, everything is to it's do about with the Reformation. Reformation. <laughs> and he's writing a bit about gloves, and you'd be amazed. Everything's about gloves. Cats are about gloves. Ghosts are about gloves. Lightning's about gloves. But either the way... The hand is about gloves. It demonstrates that not only does everything has a history, but that those histories link together in, in unexpected ways. So the history of lightning is actually all about the American Revolution, believe it or not. Yep, because this is, a, this is an English lightning rod. The American lightning rods are pointed. And so at the time of the American Revolution, in order to get back at the sort of colonial British authorities, Americans put pointed lightning rods on all their civic buildings and that's as a form just, of American identity. And that's not just any lightning rod. That's the lightning rod from the flagship of the French, uh, uh, French flagship at the Battle of the Nile, which exploded. And that's all that's left of it, because Nelson himself was a human embodiment of a lightning strike. That's actually how he saw himself. And he fished this out of the sea after the Battle of the Nile, brought it home and put it next to his wellies by the front door. <laughs> so it's actually a conversation piece. You walk into Nelson's house, the first thing you say is, what the hell is that? Actually, it's all about a lightning rod. And then he goes on to explain. So you can open up all of these doors. Cats, we've just done, which is wonderful for me. They were all about dried, mummified cats. So throughout history, people have been finding dead cats in walls and under buildings. You may not be surprised. They, you know, they get stuck there. But what we've discovered is actually a lot of those cats have been posed in a certain position, often with a rat in their mouths or close to their mouths. Scare cats. They're scare cats. So in the same way you have a human uh, effigy to scare crows, in the past they had scare cats. That's really cool, but it's a bit weird burying it in your house. And you know, part of the things we find out is like, well, I, I can't explain that, but you know, at least we've opened a door and someone hopefully will now go out there and explain what on earth scare cats are doing in all of our houses. Check your walls, check your chimneys. But for me, cats, as we said earlier on, are all about the French Revolution. Uh, and this takes us to Robert Darnton's wonderful book, uh, The Great Cat Massacre. Uh, it's amazing how... Who's read The Great Cat Massacre? Have none of you We have one reader here. It's a wonderful example. I think she's lying. A wonderful example of cultural history. And what he does is he takes an episode in Paris in the 1730s, in the Rue Saint-Severin, and it's in a printer's workshop. And you have two apprentices um, who, in order to get back at their master and mistress for their ill treatment. They were treated more poorly than the cats. They decided that what they would do was one of them would be outside the master and mistress's window in the night and would howl like a cat. Meow! They did this for three nights. It's a very good cat impression. Just the, to point the, that out. They did this for three nights. The master then went to the apprentices and said, you should round up those cats. They rounded up these cats, put them on trial, um, and also took the mistress's favourite cat, La Grise, the grey, and they bashed its spine in with a bar. So they massacred these cats, uh, strung them up, 
And the idea behind this for Danton, Danton was, it was, was influenced by uh, an anthropologist, Clifford Geertz, whose methodology was about thick description. And the idea is that basically, for the apprentices, this was a joke. And in order to actually get what they were talking about, what, what, was, what was fascinating about this and what made them laugh, you need to unpack the significance and symbolism of the cat and to actually execute cats, what that actually meant. Because it's something for a nation of cat lovers that seems so absolutely barbaric. And for him, what he saw was that this was the sort of, these were, this was the sort of seedbed of the kind of, um, the kind of um, uh, oppositional forces that we see that are absolutely ripe for those ideas of the French Revolution. And that actually what you have is a subversive group in Paris, like the apprentices, who were, want, who, were, who were willing to subvert the social order by executing cats for fun. So the cat is all about the French Revolution. It's not, it's actually it's all about big cats in Devon. <laughs> <laughs> I found this example of someone actually, that they shot a big cat, it was a lynx. Anyway, we're not talking about cats, we're going to get carried away. But that's the whole point about this. I think one of the things you'll find, hopefully, is that nothing is simple, everything is massively complicated, and in that complication is so much enjoyment to be had. Um, we choose topics quite randomly. Um, the next ones we're doing, we're doing a summer special, we're doing the history of the bucket and the spade and beaches. And then um, we decided that was a good idea, but we have no idea at all about what we're going to say about it. So for this, the obvious thing to do was the history of chalk and the history of valleys. So um, we've both been desperately racking our brains um, and trying to think in creative ways about how we can do the history of chalk and valleys. We're going to start with chalk. Um, what we have here is a, is a word cloud. And it's deliberately difficult to read, so you have to turn yourself around like this. But what we do, I mean, in terms of our methodology, what we do, having decided what we're going to do, we then go off in our opposite directions and research independently and then get back together and we have no idea what each other has been researching. So, Sam, if we think about the history of chalk, what is the history of chalk for you? Well, for me, I, I'm not going to look at this word cloud because James wrote this word cloud and it's going it's to help me. It's going to confuse me. So I'm not going to look at it. Um, my initial thoughts was uh, it was to do with writing. And I have always been fascinated by writing, the different ways people write, what people write on, why they write. I've really enjoyed walking around here. You'll notice there are chalk, there's chalk writing on a lot of the army uh, trucks. What's going on there? Why, why have they written it that way? Why have they chosen to write those words? Why have they done it in chalk? So chalk, uh, as, as a means of writing, fascinated me. Um, as a naval and maritime historian, the other thing that immediately came to mind was um, uh, the, the, the White Cliffs of Dover. Um, I've always been fascinated in the way that you see our country is different on a boat from how it is when you live here, when you're actually on the land. And that's guided my research in a number of ways. One of the most interesting ways is at Falmouth, where they have this extraordinary thing called the King's Pipe, which is a massive chimney that stands on the harbour in Falmouth. Falmouth's one of these curious places. It doesn't make sense at all if you approach it from the land. It's all wiggly lanes, and you have to fight your way through, and then eventually you find the harbour. If you approach Falmouth from the sea, the first thing you see is this pipe. And that's without it being lit, billowing out smoke. But then you think, OK, well, I'm approaching it from the sea. Where have I come from? 
And actually, if you're the first person to come to England, full stop, first place you get to is Falmouth. And the first thing you see is the king's pipe. And it was used for burning contraband tobacco. My point is, it was a demonstration of royal sovereignty to people entering the country. It's the first thing they saw. So for me, I immediately thought, OK, what about the sailor's gaze? What about the way that you see our country from the sea? So for me, writing and then cliffs. But then I did think about archaeology for a bit. For me, it's writing. It's the, obviously the blackboard. It's uses of chalk, which you can sort of run in all sorts of different ways, from the chalk that you use in sport, connect it to John McEnroe's famous sort of chalk dust. It's also related to chalk pits. It's related to geology. We're sitting right in the middle of Chalk Valley. And I think one of the interesting things also that runs through this, this, this sort of a serious point that runs through this, is, sort of the, sort of, is the, the sort of geographical determinism that you have in history. So in other words, the, kind of the, the sort of immovable, long durée geographical features of the world or of an area that then impose certain constraints on mankind as it sort of glides its way through history. So there's that. Um, there's also um, hillside carvings. Yeah. And as we, um, as, we, as we drove in today, uh, our very gracious hosts in the front row here um, told us that, in fact, there are, on the hillside as you enter uh, Chalk Valley, there are um, uh, military uh, carvings in the hillside uh, that are post, post-World War I, I think. Did we get those um, uh, chalkboards that I talked about in the car on the? Yes, on the... we we haven't got them. We haven't got them up here, but uh, yeah. No. So, so one of the things I, I came across today as well is absolutely wonderful discovery. I, I adore things like this. Um, uh, so in Oklahoma, they were refurbing a school, and they unscrewed the blackboards. Get some new blackboards up there, and then underneath the blackboards, they found the old blackboards from 1917 with a lesson on them. And they are truly amazing. We only discovered this. It's too late to actually get it up. But they are wonderful things. So um, there was a lesson about the founding fathers. There was a picture of a ship. There was descriptions about who came, when they came. There was a maths lesson. And, you know, you think about chalk, we'll do it in a minute. But, you know, it's, it's supposed to be wiped away. It's supposed to be transient. And I adore things like that. They're there for a glimpse. And then they're gone. And that's essentially the essence of history. As historians, we're constantly trying to find the lesson that's been wiped away. That's what we do, and I think that's why I feel so enthusiastic and kind of close to this idea of chalk as a historian. Um, But here was a glimpse of a lesson in 1917 in Oklahoma, and it's been preserved. It's truly fabulous. So um, when you get home, just Google Oklahoma School 1917 blackboards. Wonderful, wonderful pictures. I mean, what what, what I'm going to talk about now is, is the way in which the history of chalk relates to the history of education. And I'm going to talk about, very briefly, about the history of the blackboard and then the history of the pre-blackboard. The history of the blackboard is, in fact, a relatively new phenomenon. The blackboard comes into use in about the early 1800s. Um, Before that, there are very early records in India in about the 11th century. In the 16th century, there are references to blackboards being used for grammar. Um, The first mention in the OED is early 18th century, but it's really in the, it's really these two pioneers, James Pillins, who was the, who was a a geographer at the old high school in Edinburgh in 1800, uh, and George Barron at West Point 
uh, in the US who was a maths instructor. And both these guys came up with this idea of actually putting together um, individual chalkboards, the kind of chalkboards that children would have used, little slates that children would have used. They stuck them all together and then used them in order to do maths calculations and to do geography. It's not then until the 1840s that we actually have the first commercial production of the blackboard. And it's not until the 1960s that we have the green board. But I think what this shows is actually a revolution in educational techniques. If you think about the history of education, for much of, the, uh, much of history, education has been very limited. It's been learning by rote. There's a shortage of textbooks. Paper and books are incredibly expensive. And instead of, instead of writing things up on a blackboard, you would dictate. You would dictate to a class. So you, you imagine a class scribing down, looking down. As soon as you have a blackboard up there, attention is focused on that. The blackboard, as Sam said, is erasable, so you can rub things out. It's a space for experimentation as well. So it makes it a space for thought, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, um, if you've got... You could actually allow children to, 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 to think as... To, to, to enunciate their thoughts, and then you can map those thoughts. And to come up and write on the blackboard. So it's actually also the history of empowerment of children. Yeah, yeah and attention. Especially, yeah. I love the idea of their attention being up rather than down. Yeah. And I wanted to draw your attention to these horn books here, pre-blackboard, the kinds of, of pedagogical technologies that people would have used in Shakespeare's time. These would have been little, um, little horn books, which are little sort of wooden paddles. And on it, I don't know whether you can see from the back, but on it you have an ABC. You then have the, the Lord's Prayer underneath. So it's a way in which you use this to inculcate children to learn their basic ABC and also give them a healthy diet of religious training as well. Well, that rem makes me think of the, um, you know, the Ro Roman, the way the Romans were writing in wax yeah, yeah. and how that changed. But I, I think it's, it's also with the history of privacy as well. It's not, yeah. If everyone's focused on their tablets, they're not, their thoughts are private. Yeah. But then when they're looking up and they're sharing their thoughts, I think that's fabulous. Are there any teachers here? I know there are teachers here. I met some earlier. Thank you very much. So, it's, you know, it's a wonderful moment, yeah. isn't it, in, in sharing and, and I think really improving the way people yeah. learn. And this, this idea of erasing, so rubbing things out, is, is, not a, is not merely the invention of the blackboard. And I've got here um, this little mini book. I spent a couple of, su couple of summers ago, I spent a, a month in the British Library just pulling up all sorts of, of rare books that I was looking at and came across this, Writing Tables by Robert Triplett. And what you have here is a tiny little handheld volume, probably like that. And in it are these little pages with what looks like, see, it's a sort of see-through film. And you put the see-through film down onto the surface. And rather like an Etch-a-Sketch now, you can write onto it. And then you peel away, and then you reveal the writing. Then you peel away the film, and the writing has gone. And this is related to the line in Hamlet, where Hamlet is talking about erasing his memory. And he talks about, from the table of my memory, I'll wipe away all trivial, fond thoughts. It's not until very recently that people have actually glossed that as relating to writing tables. Just I mean, briefly, just talking about the history of erasing. 
That's fascinating. Um, and we started off this conversation saying that everything has a history. And actually, you can apply that to such an extent that you can say nothing has a history. The history of absence is really, really important. It's the history of editing. It's the history of removing words that people find distasteful. And as a historian, that's a really important and difficult challenge to actually a bit read between the lines, but to know what has been altered and why it has been changed. Yeah. And um, the history of silence. Yep. But also, the, you know, history itself you know, is, about, is about erasure. And that's related to the nature of archives, what survives and what doesn't survive. I'm writing a book at the moment on... Um, I'm writing lots of books at the moment, but one on, Don't get him started. on archives and the, uh, gender and the politics of archives, which is all about the way in which records relating to women have been erased from state archives and the way in which we need to rethink what constitutes an archive in order to better reintegrate women's history back into the mainstream. Silence is important as well, especially silence with the church. That Dermot McCulloch's wonderful book. Yeah. What, what can you talk about? What can't you talk about? Who has the power to erase? Chalk's part of that story because it's so easily erasable. You can see something you don't like. Graffiti, gone. Wiped off. That's given you an immense amount of power. And you've silenced someone right there. And so ink is also about the history of chalk because ink's much more difficult to erase. It makes your thoughts, it makes your beliefs, it makes your understandings, it makes your records, it makes your diaries permanent but you can burn you can purge yeah and the his, you know the history books are full of that and if you think about those kind of deep layers those deep contours of the historical record and how they survive it is about policies of archiving and collecting yeah and it's about it's about memory what you choose what you choose to privilege and you choose to to, to maintain and what you choose to discard we could, go, we could go on all evening about that. We should move on. We're at thir we've got 35 minutes left, and we've got to get through lots and lots. OK, here we go. White Cliffs of Dover. But no! France. Really important points to start off with. The, you a clicker. Thank you very much. Which way do I go? Uh, green is go. Next. Do you reckon that's next? Yes. Thank you very much. It's a professor. Um, I know these things. <laughs> so what matters here, it's, it's basically to do with... Uh, British understanding and identity, the cultural identity they've infused in the White Cliffs of Dover. The White Cliffs of Dover have a much more significant part and place in our history than the White Cliffs of France. They don't exist. No one really cares about them. Why? The French and that's probably a really, really interesting. They don't to the extent that we do. Proven facts. Right. Good, good. Very much. Back in your box. We're all about facts. Yeah, we're I'll all get all about in my facts. box. Um, and I've always been absolutely fascinated by this. Um, here's an interesting interesting thing here. So, 1961, a Caribbean chap called Mervyn Morris was uh, travelling from Jamaica to take up a position at Oxford University. And he arrived by boat. And he talked about what he described as the fundamental lesson of nationalism. I learnt this half an hour away from England, approach, uh, approaching the cliffs of Dover. There was excitement among the, among the English on board. I looked, but the cliffs seemed very ordinary to me. And then I realised that, of course, the cliffs are not cliffs. To the Englishman, they are a symbol of something greater, of the return from a land of strangers, of the return home. Nothing is more important in nationalism than the feeling of ownership. Now, that's really got me thinking about the way that we understand and we think about 
those cliffs, particularly the ones around Dover. And they've always been imbued with a very significant military thought. And there's a wonderful medieval quote about the defence of England. And it's actually specifically aimed at the navy. The king must look to his moat, meaning the English Channel, meaning the seas that surround us. And in that respect, the cliffs themselves are very much part of those defensives. They are physical and very important defences to England. And on top of that, you've got massive castle there. You've got Dover Castle there. It, uh, it's one of the earliest castles in England. Uh, it looks very much like uh, the Tower of London. And this whole military concept of the cliffs around Dover has been ongoing ever since the 11th century when William of Normandy built the, the first castle of Dover there. there was, it's all to do with anxieties of invasion. And it's all to do with essentially how we think about it. But what matters, of course, is that for the people who were living in England in the 14th, 15th, 16th centuries, they saw no significance really in those cliffs beyond their means of defence. But that changes in the 17th and the 18th century. And that's all to do with the Industrial Revolution. It's all to do with transport. It's all to do with more people going to visit the cliffs. So more people pass that way. Who here has seen the White Cliffs of Dover? Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? That's That's genuinely amazing. Travelling to France, travelling back on a ferry, I'm not sure how you'd have all come across from it in a different way. So I think we've started off, though, by demonstrating to this Caribbean visitor that the cliffs didn't mean to him what they meant to other people, but to everyone else. It has a different sense of kind of construction. There's a cultural construction going on there. A lot of it's to do with defence. A lot of it is to do with coming home. These are images by Turner. So he's painting in the 1840s, the 1850s. And I think, look at the one on here. This is a lithograph based on one of Turner's paintings. And so you've got the invention of um, materials which allow artwork to be passed over and to be absorbed by thousands and thousands and thousands of people. So even if you haven't been to the White Cliffs of Dover, you've seen the White Cliffs of Dover. Or you've Uh, heard the song, The White Cliffs of Dover. I mean, not at Turner's time, but it it later becomes (laughs) associated with... World War I and Vera Lynn. I've got, I've got a pointer. So, again, this is a Turner, um, very dramatic, almost sort of over-exaggerated view of the cliffs here, um, also very military. So, in the 19th century as well, with the fears of invasion, we massively defend this part of our country. Now, this all changes with the invention of flight. Suddenly, the barriers don't matter so much. But then also, the White Cliffs then become a front line in the Second World War. The White Cliffs are actually bombarded by German guns in France. And so this sense of the borders of our country being so important to us had this, and another kind of resurgence in the 1940s. The White Cliffs of Dover actually became the front line for us. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And here we've got a very carefully choreographed. This is uh, Field Marshal Douglas Hay coming back after the First World War. And it was all very carefully choreographed, his return, a big military pageant under the cliffs of Dover. So for me, I think chalks to do with symbolism... Um, England was known as Albion, the white country. It means white. People knew about this. Caesar would have known about this when he came and when he invaded. Oh, and I'm going on to that next, but there should be one for you. Yeah, yeah. I think we'll come back to that. We will come back to that. You want to do this? So, I mean, one of the things that I, one of the things also is thinking about the thinking about the the geology of um, of this of this isle. It. it Chalk is everywhere, and it was very striking sort of driving into Chalk Valley today, you know, how, how sort of prominent that is on the landscape. And I think connecting to Sam's point about the White Cliffs of Dover, I mean, those of you who've sort of driven around the countryside will have sort of, of course, come across these sort of prehistoric hill figures, the Uffington White Horse just outside of Oxford uh, and the Cern Abbas giant in Dorset. Now, many people think that these are prehistoric um, carvings. Um, this one here possibly is the Uffington White Horse. It's possibly still cut on the original markings. Uh, this one is, is thought to be much more of a sort of 19th century example. But these, just like the White Cliffs of Dover, are absolutely buried into our consciousness. There are several ways in which you would create these. You either peel the turf away, so if the, t if the chalk is very, is very close, you peel, you peel it back, so you strip it back. Or you take pieces of chalk and you put them on the grass. Or you use a technique called trenching, which is actually pretty drastic to the landscape, where you dig a trench until you reach the chalk. But the idea of this is that you need to be connected to it. You need to keep it going. The ones on the hillside, just outside of where we are now, are apparently maintained by a charity that, that is very sort of concerned with keeping that, that image and that symbolism, and it's part of sort of community building, mm. and it's part of identity. It makes you wonder who built them. Oh, so my first thought there was actually, how do you date it? I don't, I don't, yeah. Even as an archaeologist, I don't know how you date different layers of chalk no. construction if you're making an image. No, particularly when so much of it is, you know, in order for it to be in... In order for it to be there today, yeah. somebody in the present day needs to sort of, you know, pull the grass off. They okay. need to whitewash it. Which makes me think there must be lots of examples of those out there which don't, we don't know about. Yeah. Which have been grown over. And that's fascinating. I mean, Ply Plymouth, for example. Uh -huh. Plymouth, in, in, in 
in Carew's survey of Cornwall refers to these Plymouth hoe giants, mm. um, which have been erased. We're back, to, we're back to chalk and erasure. They were no longer maintained. And a few years ago, an artist came up with an idea. I don't think it was ever actually put into practice, but came up with the idea of reinstating those Plymouth Hoe giants on Plymouth Hoe. But I want to, ju I want to just go back to talk about an essay on chalk by G.K. Chesterton, which I won't read at sort of great length, but written in 1905, Chesterton, the great essayist. One, he, the essay is about him going on a going on a, on a trip, on an outing, and taking his chalks with him. And he sits down to sketch, and all he's got is his coloured chalks. He doesn't have his white chalks. And he gets up and he starts kicking up a sort of song and dance about it, and the cows look at him as if he's slightly mad. And then he has this sort of eureka moment where he says, you know, what would a man, a man who was in the Sahara Desert, regretting that he had no sand for his hourglass, imagine a gentleman in mid-ocean wishing that he'd brought some salt water with him for his <laughs> chemical experiments. I was sitting on an immense warehouse of white chalk. The landscape was made entirely of white chalk. White chalk was piled more miles until it met the sky. I stooped and broke a piece of chalk I sat on. It did not mark so well as the shop chalks do, but it gave the effect. And as I stood there in a trance of pleasure, realising that this southern England is not only a grand peninsula and a tradition and a civilization, it is something even more admirable. It is a piece of chalk. And as we sit here today in this tent, it's satisfying to think that we are in fact standing on a piece of chalk. I think he was clutching at straws a bit about the guy on the boat wanting to do some, I know. <laughs> some experiments on his boat. With some do you want to go back to your hobos? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do we have time? Yes, we have, we've got a little bit of time. Um, so uh, let's move on from there. Um, this is truly brilliant and it encapsulates everything I love about chalk and also about writing and everything. So after the Great Depression, we have uh, massive unemployment um, in America and we have hobos. They travelled the country, often in railroads, very kind of intense link between hobo culture and the American railroads, where they travelled and how they travelled. But what's really important is they, they started to learn to talk to each other and to leave signs for each other. And they often did it in chalk, because chalk was cheap, chalk was available, and you can use chalk to write on anything. I think we haven't actually talked about that, have we? But it's, it's the ability, you can really write on anything uh, with chalk. My, I had Clothes. a cunning plan today to actually uh, bring loads of bits of chalk. I was going to give them to you all. You could graffiti the entire site, and I forgot! So uh, we'll maybe do that tomorrow. But um, so, they thank you very much. They have this um, community. Community very much lives under the radar. They're trying to avoid the police. They're trying to avoid the law. They're trying to find work. So hobos are very different from what Americans call bums. Hobos, they are um, itinerant workers. They travel, but they travel for work. They have nowhere to live. They have nowhere to stay, but they're looking for work. They're looking for people to look after them. They're looking for the next meal. They're looking for somewhere to stay. They're looking for somewhere who's going to offer them a job. They are not looking for dangerous dogs. They are not looking for scary police. They're not looking for law enforcement. They're, they're, they're trying to build this community, and they did it with chalk. And also, they're trying to find each other which is fascinating. Now, this is a very recent photograph of some marks found underneath a bridge in Los Angeles. Um, and so even though it's, it's over a century old, this, um, but those markings are still there. So even though we've talked about chalk being easy to erase, it's also 
it, it leaves its mark on time. So here we have a name, which is rather one, 1913, uh, August. We've got a name, and we've got an arrow. We've got another name, another arrow. Arrow means that's where I'm going. You mark your spot, and then off you go. So it's communicating. It's communicating. But they, we've recently discovered that actually they had an entire language. Um, it's not quite Chinese characters, but it's, it's absolutely wonderful. And they used all of these signs and these signals. Dishonest man, here is the place. Work available. I ate. 18. <laughs> fake illness here, V. Fake illness. That, that's an instruction. Fake illness. Yeah, yeah, if you, fake, if an you illness, fake illness, you'll get fed. Yeah, you'll get fed, you'll get money. Dog, homeowner. That's a really interesting one. I wouldn't do that for a dog. Teeth. Yeah. We need to move on. No, we don't. We're bad dog. I quite like. What's this? Doubtful, not sure. Anyway, it's quite like an emoji. That's my point. Right? They're early emojis, they're kids' emojis. And I think that they're, they're truly wonderful. And, um, and they're lost. So we know they were there, but so many of them have gone now. Um, they've survived, but we're trying to find out about these a bit more. But what the great thing about it is there are very few um, primary sources saying, yeah. oh, I went to Oklahoma Railway Station and I left a mark. I imagine the way in which they survive is through photography yeah. of the period. So people recording the life of people travelling on the railroad. We're going to have to... Inadvertently, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're photographs of... I'm keeping an eye on the time. Shut up. They're <laughs> photographs of a, uh, like a railroad station, and then just in the top corner, hidden, is a little sign you can see. Um, but a very occasionally, telegraph poles is another place. So surviving yeah, yeah. telegraph poles, um, they often have them. Sorry. No, 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 that's good. We need to move on to valleys. We have 21 minutes and 43 seconds, and I've been told by our, our hosts at the back that we need to... They need to go home, yeah. uh, much as you'd probably like to stay. And we want you to ask some questions. So um, we, don't have some we don't have time to talk about quick climb, and I was going to tell you about the cholera outbreak in 1832. A product of chalk, a byproduct of chalk was quick climb. Um, the cholera epidemic needing to bury lots of people yeah. all of a sudden in a pit. You put quick climb on them, it speeds up the decomposition process, and you can hurl another corpse on it. So it's to do with death. Next. The valley. You may recognise this. So you're leading on this. I was going to do an entire thing on Neolithic flint mines. I've just realised that. We've, I know we've, we've run, run out of time. over time. So flint's all to do with chalk. Flint is only found in chalk. We still don't really know how flint is formed, but it's found in chalk. And it's all to do with Neolithic uh, art, basically. Yes. It's people carving in chalk, because chalk you can carve in as well as used to write. Now I've said that, I'm fine. I'm relaxed. Good. Whew. Valleys. Yeah, valleys. Um, valleys. Right. Death Valley. So, so again, the same sort of thing. Um, valleys, top of your head, James. Valleys, go. Uh, valleys for me are all about um, trade. They are about uh, the Industrial Revolution. Um, they are about the, 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 the Welsh valleys um, and the sort of sad story of the, the decline of the valleys in Wales, the rise post pre-World War I and World War II, the importance for iron, for coal, and then the demise. Valleys are also related to disaster, avalanches, landslides. Um, they are also related to death, and I'll talk a little bit about, you know, about death later on, since I didn't have time to regale <laughs> you about cholera. He does go back to death. I'll talk not. about the deathbed. Is it to do with the Reformation, James? Uh, it, it's part. The, <laughs> Reformation, the Reformation comes in that because there's a, there's a shift in uh, in in funerary practices and people preparing themselves for death. The the in, early in moderns were much better prepared for death than we are in our irreligious age. 
of today. What's that got to do with values? I'll tell you more. I'll tell you more. Okay. You'll see Psalm 23 for those right, of you fine. who know your Bible okay. inside out. Valleys, valleys for me were all to do. Um, we decided to do valleys. I drove down to Cornwall. Um, and has anyone driven past St. Austell recently? Yeah, we've got some of us. So St. Austell has a massive um, China clay mine. Okay, and there's a very distinctive peak in the landscape as you drive past it. And I said to my son, I said, look over there, it's Mount St. Austell, it's Cornwall's only volcano. You make sure you tell your geography teacher that you've seen Cornwall's only volcano. And he's like, oh, daddy. Uh, so it was sorted with fake valleys for me, uh, which I loved. Actually, so there are some landscapes where valleys have been created, and those landscapes are very different from the kind of landscape you live in, a natural, beautiful valley like we are now. Um, but then I actually thought about it seriously, and I decided I was going to talk about the Yagnobs. Um, when I made my series on the Silk Road, the first place we went to film was the Yagnob Valley in Tajikistan, and it's a, it's, it is, without any shadow of a doubt, the most amazing place I've ever been. I've been to a lot of places, and this was so cool. We flew to the capital, Dushanbe, and then we had to drive hours, 10 hours, I don't know, 11 hours, to the Yagnob Valley. We went to the Yagnob Valley... Because there is a group of people living there um, called the Yagnobi, who live in the Yagnob Valley, and they're related to the Sogdians, who used to be traders in Central Asia um, at the time of Alexander the Great, Darius the Great. It's, you know, seriously, seriously long time ago. And the Sogdians ruled everything, were very successful traders. But then it all changed around the 8th century. Islam came in, and the Sogdians had to go and hide. They had to, they had to live somewhere else. They had to try and preserve their culture. And they did it by hiding, and they hid in a valley. And so for me, valleys are all about hiding in valleys. Um, what's wonderful about this is you have to get to the valley first. And now to do that, you have to go through something called the Anzob Tunnel, which is also known as the Tunnel of Death. So we do come back to a death. Tunnel of Death. So would you like to go in that? I, trust me, it was one of the worst half an hour. How long my, is it? Oh my God. Five kilometres, okay, no lights, five kilometres, no ventilation, potholes, but I mean, I mean potholes that are the size of a swimming pool. So you, you have to avoid them. And which, there are only two lanes of traffic and you've got massive Chinese juggernauts hammering through it because they're rebuilding all of Central Asia. Um, it was one of the most frightening things I've ever done in my life. But when you get there, you get to this. Um, a friend of mine saw the bridge. He said, is this the bridge over the map 3 and 4? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, you're watching your bridge over the River Kwai. But, um, so he, you. you come out the other end. Here I am with a, with a load, a bit rather sunburnt, with a load of, of these wonderful, wonderful yagnobbies. He's and, this one here. And they the, are the doing... <laughs> thank you very much. Doing all of their best to preserve this ancient, ancient, ancient culture. And they're failing. One of the reasons they're failing is that, uh, well, there's no support now from the Tajikistan government, unfortunately. But um, in the 70s, uh, the Soviets came in and they removed them all. They were like, we need your land for pasture. They removed them all, took them away, and they've gradually been moving back. But in that huge upheaval in the 1970s, they forgot their stories, they forgot their songs, they forgot their writing, they forgot their language. It doesn't mean it's dying, but... Um, this is the remains of the Soviet, what was going on in the 60s and 70s, um, an extraordinary Soviet bus shelter. It's a beautiful thing, but it's in the middle of the Yagnob Valley in Tajikistan. Um, they are educating them. There's a red board. We didn't talk about red boards. They speak a bit of their language. Their language is directly related to Sogdian. It's the only place you can actually hear the Sogdian language. But it's going. And 
what I found fascinating about this is, on the one hand, you have a hidden valley being a place where a culture can be preserved, where it is preserved from outside influences. But at the same time, you have the same valley, which is crushing that culture. And it's very, very difficult to save it because it's so isolated. But if you then let people into this isolated valley, they leave and the culture goes. So historians are now in a desperate, panicky rush to try and solve this, this hideous valley conundrum. What do you do to preserve a culture of a hidden society, thousands of years old, in a hidden valley that no one knows anything about? And I don't know the answer to that, and I think it's quite sad. Hmm. I want to take valleys in a different direction and talk about them in terms of conflict and freedom. And I want you to just picture, you know, to picture the development of a valley. You know, we have the sort of formation of a valley which is a sort of, if we think about it as a sort of uh, a, a dip with hills on both sides, and normally a river going through it, and we think about those geological conditions, you know, rather like we've got here, these were often ripe conditions for settlement, so you get development there. You, they, you connect to, to bridges, to transport, and if you think about this historically, in terms of how civilizations have formed, you're able to build towns, you're able to trade, and then you think about the mechanisms of control that go into such places. As soon as you insert the church, you have a mode of control, of thought, and you think about religion in sort of sociological terms, and you think about it as a way of controlling the people. We're back to the Reformation. Um, you think about it in terms of taxation. You think about it in terms of local government. And you think about it in terms of controlling what people do. So the valley then becomes about control, in contrast to the mountain. The mountain is all about freedom. And I'm thinking here of that wonderful um, French historian, Brodel, uh, and his wonderful sort of Mediterranean world, and a brilliant essay on mountain freedom. And what he argues there is in fact that people in the mountains are freer because all the tentacles of the state that you see in the valley and in the settlements don't manage to permeate up into the mountains. You know, barely the church goes up there, the local tax inspector doesn't go up there, um, the local... Um, the, 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 um, armies don't go up the there. The armies don't go up there. So if you think about it in terms of communication, it's incredibly cut off, incredibly rural, but that people live much simpler and freer lives. How do we know about mountain life? And this brings us back to our, our problem that we were talking about earlier on, to sort of have this big sort of historical meta-narrative going about this, about silences in the historical record. It's very difficult to reconstruct the life of peasants living in the mountains, shepherds, mountain dwellers, from their own perspective, largely because they were illiterate throughout much of our history. The way in which we, the way in which we understand about them is how they are viewed by people down in the valleys. And that is either travel writers who were going up and seeing them and caricaturing them in particular ways, which has its own kind of sense of power in terms of how it identifies them, or it is through conflict. It's when they come down 
into the valleys to trade for markets. And it's there that they come into conflict because they are culturally different, they are culturally other, so we know so much about them when they have infractions with the law, they end up in the legal courts. So what we have then is this kind of this sense of conflict mm. versus freedom. I love that. Mountain freedom. It was reasonably clever of you, James. It was very clever. <laughs> yes. Um, so I live on. Uh, well, I live in Exeter. We both live in Exeter. We live very close to Dartmoor. Um, you should visit. It's lovely. Very lovely. Please don't visit. We've got enough people there. Um, this is uh, a medieval settlement on Hound Tor on Dartmoor. Always been obsessed with this because there's another one. My daughters love this place. Uh, here, this is even better. This is Rough Tor on Bobbin Moor. Okay. Um, you've got medieval field systems. And uh, I was taken for walks up here with my parents when I was a kid. And, you know, you'd hike your way across this moorland landscape. It was full of bogs. It was very windy. It was completely inhospitable. And then you could get to these fields and you've left Padstow, which is lovely. <laughs> and it's kind of sunny and there's a nice harbour and a beach and stuff. And these lunatics were living up here. And it's exactly the same as, as Hound Talk. What were they doing? So for me, one of the, the most interesting things that I've thought about, I think from a Devon perspective, is why people chose not to live in a valley when there are so many exquisite valleys around here. Yeah. When I live near the, the, the River X and I'm constantly walking my dog down there. It takes mm. 10 minutes. I'm in a beautiful valley. There's a river. There's fresh water. Water goes to the sea. Sea, I can trade. I can travel. I can do anything. People chose not to do that. And what's fascinating about this is we still don't understand why. So on Bobmanmore particularly, there are two phases of inhabitants. There's Bronze Age inhabitants and there's late medieval inhabitants. Uh, Hound Tours, 12th, 13th century, something like that. It's around the time of the, uh, the Devon. It's not my period. Long <laughs> the Reformation. Uh, anyway, one of the explanations is to do with environmental change. So uh, the temperature heats up. You can start growing crops on top of the moor, which means everyone moves out. Or it's to do with um, uh, pressure from... Um, too many people, so population pressure. And then it changes again when you have things like the Black Death, which changes the amount of people that actually live down in the valleys. You can move back down to the valleys. But archaeologists now are mm. finding out that that theory of explaining things according to environmental change, being able to grow crops up on the moor, doesn't work because there isn't any evidence of people growing crops up on the moor. And so this is a bit of a mystery. But there is a, it's a significant thing that these aren't hilltop Iron Age defended settlements. They're not the wonderful Iron Age hill forts. It's very, very different, and it happens not just in one place, in several places, but we still don't know the answer to why people would choose to leave a valley and live on top of a moor. And we're talking about, when we're looking at things like climate and we're looking at things like geography, we are talking about these historical phenomena that French historians would put in what they describe as the long durée. So they're basically things that don't shift over, over, they, they exist for thousands of years and, it, and only sort of over very, very gradually do they, do they, do they change and shift. Right, I need Take my... Take me to death. I need my... I need my um, I'm going to read you a little bit of a spiritual diary uh, to cheer you up just before you go home uh, this evening. So what I wanted to talk about, I mean, one of the things that I thought of when, when thinking about valleys and one of the things that we try and do is we think about how we can take the topics that we discuss in different ways. And as I hope you've, we've sort of de demonstrated tonight, what we do is we link them in very sort of unexpected ways. So when I was thinking about the valley, when I was thinking about valley, I was slightly sort of kicking Sam 
sort of intellectually for having, having sort of suggested that we would do valley, valleys as a, as a topic. Um, and I was sort of reaching around trying to find things. And I thought, yes, Psalm 23, <laughs> the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Why death is associated with valleys rather than pits or mountains, I don't know. But I took this as my sort of riffing point for thinking about the way in which people experienced death in former times. And for much of our, for much of our, the sort of earlier, earlier period, pre-1700, pre whoops, I've just, um, much of our period pre-1700, sort of we have a very sort of, um, a very religious attitude towards death. The church is very, very present. It is a, it is a ritualized way of dying. And I think people are incredibly, were incredibly well prepared to meet their maker in a way that people aren't today. Nowadays, if you think about dying and the way in which people die, it is very sanitized, it's very medicalized. In earlier times, this was not the case. Religion, therefore, and ritual and symbolism played an incredible role in the way in which people actually met their, their spent their last hours and met their maker. And we can reconstruct this in many ways, both pre-Reformation and post-Reformation. Um, what I want to, since time is coming on, what I want to do is just read you a short extract uh, from the wonderful autobiography of Anne Thornton. Um, it is a, it's an 800-page manuscript that survives in an archive in Yorkshire. She's a 17th-century gentlewoman, and she basically writes this as part of a spiritual exercise. It's basically a way, a cathartic way of her dealing with the troubles and trials and tribulations of her life through the Civil War and afterwards. And there's a really touching description where she describes the death of her mother, Lady Wandsford. And a really sort of touching um, description where she and her husband go along and say their farewells to her. Uh, the children come along and say their farewells as well. And then there's a real sort of sense of agency or power or authority for the mother. And I think what's interesting here is about how the mother is able to interpret her passing. And I think what, what I think for people who in the 17th century were deeply religious, there is a real belief in providentialism. So that everything was down to God's will and that dying was part of God's will. And I'll just read you this. This is, this is absolutely amazing. After which I took the saddest last leave of my dear and honoured mother as ever child did part with so great and excellent a parent and infinite comfort. And yet the great grief I had was increased by reason of her exceeding torment which she endured, which made me more willing to submit to part with her who I saw endured much pains and extremity, not desiring she should so long endure that which it was the pleasure of God for exercise of her patience to lay on her also. 
When she saw me weep much, for this affliction of hers did indeed concern me nearly, she said, Dear child, why will you not be willing to part with me to God? Has he not lent me, lent me to be a comfort to you for so long? Oh, part with me freely as I desire to enjoy my Saviour in heaven. Do not be unwilling that I should be delivered from this miserable world. Give me willing and freely to him that lent me thus long and be contented in everything. You never have been disobedient to me in all your life. I pray thee, obey me in this, that you submit cheerfully to the wise and good determination of our Lord God and fill your heart with spiritual comfort. Instead of this in me, he takes to himself. And so the blessing of God Almighty be upon the head of you and yours forever. Amen. I mean, that's such a speech to put into the mouth of somebody that's dying. My suggestion is that this is in fact a sort of set piece speech that sort of that is testimony of her fervent religious belief and there's a tradition of in Puritan thought at the time of a model of how to die a a mm. godly death so we've got the valley of the shadow of death as a as a metaphor as a metaphor but it's actually a pl it's a place it's a moment in time people go through that valley of the shadow of death and um, it's how people respond to it how people react to it I mean it's quite it's it's a you know, I've, I've, my grandparents have recently died, so you know, I've, I've been in that moment with them when they have only yeah, one yeah. choice, and it's going that way. Yeah. And that's essentially what the valley's all about. Yeah. And it's how people have responded to that, how they've changed to it, uh, sorry, how, they, how they've reacted to it, how they've recorded it in history, yeah. which I think is absolutely fascinating. Um, we've got one minute, 57 seconds. Are you going to do your graph here? <sighs> Sam loves graphs. You wouldn't, you wouldn't recognise it. It's but a contour line. Uh, no, so for me, uh, valleys, just very briefly, it's all very well talking about valleys, but it's really helpful knowing if you're in one. And it's really helpful knowing where they are. So we've talked about communication, we've talked about where these people are, lived in the valleys, we've talked about trade routes, but how do we know where the valleys are? And it's also with the history of contour lines, which is also with the history of mapping, and then that gets very, very complicated because it's also to do with the history of mapping underwater. Uh, and so I'm going to leave you with one thought because we've got one minute, 24 seconds left. And that is that we knew where the valleys were underwater before we knew where the valleys were on land. We mapped. You can't leave us with that. I'm going to leave you with that. Boom. We mapped the seas before we mapped the land. And that's a true fact. So this is one of the earliest examples of what is going to be a contour line. This is from 1584. And that's the depths of a river. Because what was more important was where you could sail your boat in a river. This is a wonderful map from uh, 1699 in the Caribbean. Um, really important thing. So if you think about the history of the Caribbean, we sail over there, we take control of it, we steal loads of Spanish gold and everything, but you can't actually take control of the Caribbean until you know where your ships can go. So the entire first wave of people who went out there, Drake and all of those followers, they were flying by the seat of their pants, and it all changed around the 1690s when we started mapping the bottom of the sea. And that is our talk. Thank you. <laughs> But yeah. That's it, I think. I'm not even going to fill in those, uh, those seconds. Uh, I hope you enjoyed yourselves, ladies and gentlemen, and please download our podcast, listen to it. Histories of the Unexpected. You can find it on historyhit.com forward slash unexpected.
If you enjoy this podcast and you like learning about the past, check out my latest venture. It's called History Masterclass, and it's a new type of historical event where you can actually learn in person from the best historians around today in unique and stunning historical locations. You can find out more at the History Master. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Masterclass.com and follow on Facebook and Twitter at The History MC.